Alright, Romans chapter 4 tonight. Romans chapter 4. And this mess we're going to be preaching tonight. Um, not going to be like discovering any new truths or anything. This is pretty elementary stuff for us here at this church. But at the same time, when we're preaching through a book, uh, we definitely want, we don't want to just skip stuff. And so, if anything, hopefully tonight we'll reinforce some things that we believe and just strengthen you uh, when it comes to your doctrine, because the more we're going through the book of Romans, the more we're just seeing we're right on what we preach about salvation. I'm not saying that in a braggadocious way, but it's just uh, one thing we always want to remember. Never allow someone to just take a text from a random place and use that to trump a passage that's literally describing how salvation works. I mean, and that's what we're seeing so far in Romans Paul is just really getting into the nuts and bolts about salvation. He's clarifying things. He's using reasoning, logic, and for people to just lead, you know, to let a verse that's not about salvation in James 2 trump everything that we're seeing in Romans is absolutely ridiculous. And we're going to go to James 2 tonight too, and I think just give even further proof about what we teach because James 2 is a big hang-up for a lot of people who do not rightly divide the Scriptures and are just using proof text. But to briefly summarize what we've discussed so far in this letter, we saw in Romans 1 that the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it is what has power to save. It works same for the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews and the Greeks might respond differently to it. They, there might be certain aspects of it that the Jews don't like. And there's different aspects of it that the Greeks don't like. But it doesn't really matter. It's what saves both Jew and Greek. Everybody gets saved from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we do not change the gospel uh, depending on who we're talking to. We might focus on different aspects of the gospel with different people, but it's the same gospel uh, no matter who we're talking to. And when we went to, uh, when we were in Skokie and we're trying to, wit trying to witness the Jews, um, you know, we didn't omit the name of Jesus Christ. We do not omit the blood of Christ as to not offend the Jews. They've got to accept that or they're not getting saved. And so we're not going to leave the name of Jesus out. And to think that there are Baptists that have tracts geared towards Jews that don't even mention the name of Jesus, that is a crime. It is a, that is a gospel crime, if you ask me. And absolutely ridiculous, because no Jew's getting saved without the name of Jesus. Nobody's getting saved without the name of Jesus. And so while those Greeks were a really wicked bunch compared to the Jews, the truth is, the way the law works... Jews were in just as much trouble as the Greeks because the Jews were also sinners. In fact, Paul even said the Greeks are actually outdoing you in some areas because they're actually obeying some things in the law because it's written in their heart where they're just kind of going along with the letter and it wasn't even in their heart. So either way, at the end of the day, no matter what, chapter 3 sums it all up and just says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As it just turns out, yeah, the Greeks are really, really bad. The Jews, they got a lot of stuff going for them, morally speaking. They're better than the Greeks in some ways. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. They all come short of the glory of God. My dad used to always use the illustration. Imagine there is a hundred foot canyon and, you know, you've, and you've got to try to jump over it to get to heaven. You know, if you jump 10 feet, you're going to hell. You know, if, you, if you're a better jumper, you jump 50 feet, you're going to hell. If you're the greatest jumper in the world, you jump 99 feet and 11 inches, you're still going to hell. You, you made it far than the other, but you still went to hell. And so the truth is, you know, you commit any sin, you're going to hell. 
Even if you didn't commit as many as other people. So really, so far, what we've seen in the first three chapters is Paul is just making it very clear that we are sinners. Showing us our sin. Isn't that what we do with the Romans road? We first establish the fact that all have sinned. That you are a sinner. One must recognize that they are a sinner. We've also seen already two very clear, crystal clear references. And he's not expounded on it yet, but he's about to. Showing too that salvation is just by believing on Christ. Because in Romans 1, 16 and 17, it said, For I am not ashamed of the, uh, the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That is exactly what we preach. Romans 3.22 Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So two times we've seen very clearly it's about believing. And so what Paul is about to do in this next chapter, Paul is not about to reveal a new gospel that is by faith and without works, as some dispensationalists would try to, not all dispensationalists, but some would try to lead you to believe that. But he is going to prove from the Old Testament that salvation is without works by showing people who are saved without works. And he's mainly focusing this too to the Jews to let them know, hey, what we are telling you here, this is not a new thing. This is according to the Old Testament. And I'm telling you, we've got to stop trying to separate these things. The Bible is all one book. And I get it. There are things that change. There was a time of reformation that came. But salvation has always been by faith and without works. And even the Pauline epistle only hyper-dispensationalists will tell you, you know, Paul's got, they'll talk about Paul's gospel that we get saved by, by faith without works. But what they want to ignore is the fact that Paul proved what he was teaching from the Old Testament. They always ignore that fact. It's like their congregations never read their Bibles. And they must not read their Bibles if they fall for that. So let's start reading in verse 1. So what should we say then? That Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found. It's important because he's made it very clear salvation is not by works. Jews and Greeks, bad. So what about Abraham, who we all know was saved? That was of faith. So what about Abraham? What has he found? And notice that reference too. It's mainly focusing on the Jews because he calls Abraham their father as pertaining to the flesh. And so he go, he's reasoning to these people who have an understanding of the law, who are familiar with Abraham, who are familiar with the Old Testament, who know the book of Genesis. And he says, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory or boast, but not before God. So Paul has already shown us too that you can't boast about salvation. But Abraham could have boasted if he were justified by works. Now, why is he telling these people in this New Testament dispensation? Well, we understand it's, you know, you don't have, you know, it's not of works for you. But why is he using Paul as proof that you can't brag? Because that was a different dispensation where they were saved by works. No, because Paul understood, the people he's talking to understood, this is the same gospel. It's the same faith. It's the same salvation. And so it was completely appropriate for him to use Abraham. And he's showing Abraham, he couldn't have been saved by works because then he could have gloried. And so it says in Romans 3.26, 
to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be the just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. So He had just said before, there's no boasting. Jesus is the just. Jesus is the justifier. There is no boasting in salvation. And so let me just prove to you, is it without works? Abraham. Abraham, if he were justified by works, he could glory. But no, Abraham was not saved by works. For what saith the Scripture? He's using the Old Testament as proof. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. This is another example in Romans where it's showing believing is what saves. And it used Abraham as proof. Abraham believed God. Genesis 15, 5. This is what this is referring to. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So now people will say, Well, Abraham didn't believe in Jesus. Time out. What did God promise Abraham? God promised Abraham he would multiply his seed as the stars of heaven. And Abraham believed God. Now let me ask you, how did God multiply Abraham's seed as the stars of heaven? Through Jesus Christ. So again, while the name of Jesus was not revealed yet, while the cross had not been revealed yet, the work of Jesus was spoken of during that time and Abraham believed what had been revealed and what he was believing in, we now know, was Jesus Christ. And that he did that through his death, burial, and resurrection. So to say Abraham did not believe in Jesus Christ is ridiculous. It does not make sense. It's wrong. And so let's take a few minutes though, because if we use the same reasoning Paul used, and I, don't you think it's important that we interpret the book of Romans the way Paul did? I think we should be consistent with Paul, right? So let's see what Paul did. Now go ahead and go to James 2 because this is important. And, I, and this is, I, I'm using this to prove Paul and James were talking about two different things. In James 2.20, he said, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? That sounds contrary to what Paul said. Paul said he wasn't justified by works. James here said that he was. Paul said he wasn't justified by works and he was saved when he believed God in Genesis 15. James, here he says he was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac upon the altar. That was years later. So did Abraham get resaved? Obviously that's ridiculous. Seest that thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Okay? Now notice that there. He was called the friend of God. This isn't what saved him, but this is what gave him that testimony and that caused him to be called the friend of God because this was a great example of faith that none of us can really relate to. We've never like had to offer up our son, been asked to offer up our son. But you know who has offered up their son and was going to have to offer up their son? God. So one of the things that often causes us to become close friends with somebody is if they've been through something very similar. And so Abraham and God have this thing in common. You know, they can, they can understand this together. And so that's one of the reasons he was called the friend of God. 
So he says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And Paul is clearly explaining how to be saved in Romans 4 where James is telling us how saved people should conduct themselves in James 2. Further proof, James 2.1, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. Okay? He's talking to his brethren. He's talking to saved people. And he's saying, don't have the faith of Christ and be a respecter of persons. There's some things that a saved person shouldn't do. It's a bad testimony. Verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. So without a doubt, James is teaching saved people how to be profitable and how to be a help to others who are in need. And you know who he uses as an example? Abraham. Okay? And so, and if, if that still confuses you, just understand, Romans 4 and James 2 do not conflict. They're just dealing with two different subjects. And let me illustrate it to you this way. Imagine, let's say there was a tragedy and Brother Aaron dies. Okay? And then 20 years later, you know, as a result of all the bad things that happen, Sarah gets out of church, Amos grows up and he doesn't get saved. 20 years later, I run into Amos. I'm out soul hunting and I want to witness to him. And what I would probably do, I would say, hey, listen, Amos, I knew your dad. Your dad had faith in Jesus Christ. Your dad had put... I would tell him about his father's faith for salvation you know, because I want him to get saved. And I would tell him, the I talk about the importance of believing on Christ. And I would use his dad as an example. Hey, your dad at one time put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He believed on him. And your dad's in heaven now. And if you'll do the same thing, you'll be in heaven. I'm using his dad as an example. And then, so that's one thing I would do. But let's just suppose that Amos did get saved. But maybe Aaron wasn't, you know, died. And they, he got out of church and just wasn't living for the Lord. If I'm talking to him, trying to encourage him to get into church and to practice the faith of his father, then you know what I would do? I would say, hey, I knew your dad. Your dad was involved in our church. Your dad was, you know, he regularly attended church. Your dad, you know, he did music in the church. And I would talk about all the things that his dad did in the church and how his father served and how he was a blessing in the church. And, you know, you ought to follow the faith of your father. And do you see how all those things I'm telling him, it's not to get him saved. But I'm just, I'm using those things. I'm using his dad as an example in that area too. And Abraham is used as an example of someone who believed for righteousness, but he's also used as an example of someone who had faith and did great things for God. And so the fact that Abraham is used for both of those things, it's not, it's, it's not a conflict. James is talking about how to live as a Christian and he used Abraham. And then Paul was talking about how to get saved. And he used Abraham. It's just two different things. And so me telling Amos about all the good things his dad did, that's not me teaching a work salvation. That's me just using his dad as an example of how a Christian should live. And my messages are not conflicting, are they? And Paul and James' messages are not conflicting. They're just talking about two different things. And we'll see even more proof of this here in a little bit. So look at verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, 
but of debt. It's amazing how many people sing amazing grace and yet think you have to do works for salvation. When the Bible says that if it's of work, it's not grace. So I don't think they know that much about amazing grace. But anyway, and if you work for someone, then they owe you something. You know, technically, you know, you're in their, they're in your, you're in their debt if they do work for you. If a plumber comes to your house and he does work, you're now in his debt. And you better pay that bill or he's, he's, he's coming for it. And so the thing is, but salvation, it's not about works. Salvation is by grace. Therefore, it can't be of work. In verse 5, but to him that worketh not. I don't know, you, you just, the Bible's real clear. It's not of works. And not even is it not of works. To him that worketh not. The guy that's not working for it. Because okay? you have some people too, they'll act like, well, yeah, it's not of works, but you know, if you're saved, you'll do the works. But then you have this part here in Romans where it's like, no, it's to him that worketh not. Because again, I'm not saying it's wrong to ever do works, but it is wrong to try to contribute to your salvation. We're supposed to put our faith in Christ. And so anyone who's doing any works for their salvation, in addition to what Jesus did, they are not saved. Salvation is faith that's fully in Jesus Christ. And so to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Doesn't sound like we've got to repent of our sins first and become godly for us to be acceptable. No, he justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. And I don't even really know what else you can even say about that verse. You know, there's some verse in the Bible, it's like there's no need for commentary. Just, there it is. Debate over. We don't need no commentary. We don't need Matthew Henry. We don't need anything. It's just, it's spelled out. I mean, Paul's making commentary on salvation. Paul, what we're reading right now is actually Paul's commentary of Old Testament Scripture. So, you know, it just, it lays it out here as clear as you can. And so another thing to keep in mind too, Paul has used an example of Abraham believing before any works to prove that salvation isn't by works. So wouldn't that also prove eternal security as well? Because he's saying, like, no, we know salvation is not about works because Abraham was declared righteous before he did any works. So he doesn't even use any of these works as like proof or on top of it or anything like that. It's like, no, we know salvation is not of works because Abraham was declared righteous before he had done any works. So right there, I mean, that alone just implies eternal security. And understand too, there's a lot in the Bible that proves eternal security, but not every place in the Bible where it's talking about salvation does it mention that just because it's implied with things like eternal life, with salvation, with free gift, with grace. I mean, it's just it's it's implied by all those things, and if you can lose it, those things are no longer what they are called. So, it you know, you have to teach somebody that you can lose your salvation. You cannot read your Bible and you know come to the conclusion you can lose your salvation. Somebody has to teach it to you. That's all, that's all there is to it. And that is a very, very common teaching in literally every false religion. And so, as plain as this is, and even though Paul has given one clear example, he goes on and he gives another example. And he doesn't use just vague people from the Old Testament and some obscure people. He literally uses probably the two most famous and mentioned guys in the Old Testament, maybe next to Moses. 
He uses Abraham and David as proof. And so, verse 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. David even talked about this, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's in Psalms 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's what we need, folks. Forgiveness, covering for our sin. Because we have sin. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. We need God to not credit us for what we have done. We need God to credit us for something we have not done. And what you know what we have not done? Righteousness. But you know who has done righteousness? Jesus Christ has. And we get imputed His righteousness. That's what Paul explains. That's what we need. That's what we're dependent on. And David wrote about it in Psalms. And so Paul is showing that what he's saying is not made up. This is, this is Bible. This is what David wrote about. This is how Abraham got saved. So he goes on in verse 9, cometh, uh, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only. Okay, we've been talking about Abraham and David that the Jews are all connected to, but is it only for them or upon the uncircumcision also? Okay? And, and he's reasoning with them here. Because you, know, you, have, you still had people who thought it was all about the Jews and everything. And Paul has already been establishing, no, God's going to judge Jew and Greek alike. Jew and Greek are both guilty. Their only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both Jew and Greek. And so this blessedness that David spoke of, this salvation that Abraham had, was it only for the circumcision or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. So, is this only for circumcision or uncircumcision? And he brought up, we've already made it clear, faith was reckoned to Abraham. Over and over, he's been showing no difference. So then he asks the question. He's reasoning, with, he's reasoning with him here. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. You know what he's saying? Hey, if you all think it's about works, if you think it's about circumcision, when did Abraham get saved? It was before the circumcision. That's what he's telling them. Abraham hadn't done that yet. God hadn't given that. Well, it wasn't that dispensation yet. Paul doesn't even bring that up because they didn't have that heresy yet. No, the, Abraham was saved before the circumcision. That proves salvation is not about the works of the law. It doesn't prove it was a different dispensation. Paul's using this to prove that salvation is not about the works of the law. It says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So God did that for Abraham. God gave him that seal because he wanted him to be the father of many nations. He wanted him to be the father of those who are also of faith, who are uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles. And notice Abraham was not given the seal of circumcision until right before the birth of Isaac. This was years later. This was years later, it says in Genesis 17, 24. Abraham got saved in Genesis 15. And in Genesis 17, 
24 says, And Abraham was 90 years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son. So the Bible couldn't be more clear. The Old Testament could be more clear. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. Now, when Abraham offered up Isaac, was he circumcised? Yes. Yes, he was. That proves, again, James and Romans are talking about two different things. Paul made it crystal clear. Abraham saved before circumcision. Abraham offers up Isaac years after the circumcision. Probably you know, a good 20, 30 years after the circumcision. And so, verse 12, And the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. This connects with what James is talking about. So Abraham, he is the father of all those who believe. Anyone who is saved, Abraham is considered the father of them because he was of faith. But Abraham also, because he was such a great man of faith, because he practiced such great faith, he is also considered the father of those who live by faith and walk in the faith of their father Abraham. So we use, so Paul, he used him rightfully as an example of someone who got saved without works. But James rightfully used him as an example of someone with great faith. The writer of Hebrews used Abraham as someone who was of great faith. And so if we're going to try to motivate somebody to get saved, you know, we, you know, it's not, not wrong to show them how Abraham got saved because it's the same way we get saved. But if we want to motivate Christians, to actually live for the Lord and be and, and ha- to practice great faith. You know who's a great example to use? Abraham. And Paul's making it clear. He's the father of both. Just like Satan is the father of lies, you know, Abraham, he's the father of those of faith, those who get saved and those who live lives showing great faith. So, again, we're, we're going to use Abraham both just like I would use. I, there's two different ways. I could use Aaron as example, potentially with his son. And so, Abraham was not just the father of the circumcision or the Jews, but he is the father of those who walk in his steps, meaning those who are of faith. The song Father Abraham is a biblical song. I was getting indoctrinated with replacement theology from the time I was a little kid. I just didn't know that we were actually you know, supposed to admit it. But we sang those songs all the time. That was one of my favorites when I was a kid, mainly because of all the actions that went along with it. You know, but I'm not going to do a demonstration. But let's go ahead right now. I want us to go to one of our favorite passages that is dispensational kryptonite and read it. And then we're going to draw a conclusion. Okay. And again, we're all familiar with this here. But again, I just want to use Paul as like a commentator. And let's see if we are consistent with Paul and how he interprets the Bible. Okay. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you. John 8. Turn to John 8. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. And I'm going to tell you what I think it's teaching. And then let's go and see if it lines up with what Paul teaches. All right? Because understand, dispensationalists will argue. They try to argue with us on this. And it's ridiculous. But John 8, 37. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews. Because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, 
ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You guys aren't very much like your father. That's what Jesus is saying. The father you're claiming. But you are like your father. The devil. And ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Now, what do we believe about this passage? Okay, we, run, we take this passage, we run our mouths, and we say, those who physically descend from Abraham are not Abraham's children, but those who are of faith are. Therefore, the promises made to Abraham and his seed do not apply to physical descendants. They only apply to spiritual descendants. Is that not what we run our mouths out here and get people mad at us for it all the time? Okay. That, that, I, I believe we can get that from what Jesus said in John 8. That yes, physically, Jesus acknowledged where they descended from. But he said, you're not Abraham's children because you do not have the faith of your father. And therefore, the promises are not going. The land does not belong to the physical descendants. Okay, Eat that, dispensationalists. The land doesn't belong to the physical descendants. I don't agree with your interpretation of John chapter 8. Well, let's go back to Romans 4 then in verse 13. And he says, For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Folks, are we wrong about this? Listen, it doesn't matter where you descend from. That means nothing. That means nothing. We are not, we, listen, Jews are impressed with themselves and disgusted by us. We saw that Saturday. But understand, while we do not, you know, we're, you know, we just don't think there's anything. We think they're just like anyone else, just way more arrogant. That's the only thing they've really got going for them. They're, they're just like everyone else. There's, there's nothing special. They have nothing coming for them. They have nothing coming for them other than the wrath of God. And we'll see that here in just a second. And so verse 14, for, and, and understand, verse, Romans 4.13 by itself destroys Zionism. Zionism is completely debunked by that one verse. Because what every Zionist out there, when they start talking about the Jews and God's chosen people, why? What, what makes them have a claim? And you know what it is? It's their descent, where they descend from, or where they claim they descend from. And I'll give it to them. I'll, I'll, I'll just give it to them. I don't even have that argument. They're Ashkenazi or whatever. I don't even care about that. It doesn't matter. I don't care if they are purebred, direct descendants from Abraham. It doesn't belong to them if they are not of faith. It is not about the law. Romans 4.13 proves that. End of story. Debate over. We won. Big time. So verse 14, not trying to be arrogant, but it's hard not to be when you have so much Scripture just vindicating what you say. And so verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. You don't understand, Brother Tommy. They get it by promise. God promised it to them. Well then, faith is made void. 
The promises of Noah. You're, you're claiming it's theirs because of the law. Because of where they descend from. That means the promise is of none effect and faith is void. Verse 14 just completely debunks what these guys are saying. So if the Jews are God's chosen people, if the land belongs to the Jews, then faith is made void. How do Zionists get around this? And you know how they get around it. They run from it and they just call you an anti-Semite. That's exactly what they do. They run from you and call you an anti-Semite. Because the law... Brother Tommy, I think you're crossing the line when you're talking about the Jews being under God's wrath. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. That is why we say the Jews are under God's wrath. You know why? Because the law worketh wrath. They want to claim to be of the law. They want to claim to follow the law. Fine, I'll give it to you. You're Jews. You're, you're, you're purebred sons of Abraham. You're under the law. You know what that means? The wrath of God is on you. That's so anti-Semitic. Paul, the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye have also suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men. Y'all know why people hate the Jews so much because they're God-chosen people. No. Bible says they're con- it's because they're contrary to all men. That's why everybody hates them. Forbidding us to speak unto the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sin always for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. They are under God's wrath to the end. I'm saved to the uttermost. They're under God's wrath to the uttermost. Unless they can become Abraham's seed now, how do you do that? Uh, I remember Jesus talking to a Jew named Nicodemus. And you know what he said? You must be born again. Flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But what, if, what do you, even Baptists do practically worshiping these people's flesh and blood? I heard a preacher one time talking about, you ever come across a Jew with the name Kohen, Kohan? Those are like the purebred from the Levitical line. Because that's what Kohan is in Hebrew. It means priest. And so those are like the real purebred Jews. Okay. Who cares? They're under God's wrath. George M. Cohan, Yankee Doodle Dandy, purebred Jew. One of the, you know, under God's wrath. If you never got saved. I just, folks, Baptists are pretty embarrassing sometimes. They, they really are. And let me just tell you something. I'm an independent fundamental Baptist. I will always be an independent fundamental Baptist. But you know what? Every religion, every movement needs a reformation every now and then. And let me tell you, the IFB world needs a reformation in a lot of areas in their doctrine, and they definitely need it in this area. It's pretty, it's pretty embarrassing, the stuff that's still being taught. But verse 16, Therefore, all right, so because the law worketh wrath, for no laws, there is no transgression. Where, therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. God made the inheritance by faith and by grace so it would be sure, so it would be guaranteed to all the seed. Meaning all those who are of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, God wants the Jews to be secure in Him. God wants us to be secure in Him. So, and so, so we could be secure, so we could have the promises guaranteed to us, God made it by grace through faith 
So any of us can have hope, whether Jew or Gentile. So what do Jews have coming for them? Wrath, unless they are of faith. Brother Tom, do you believe the Jews have any inheritance coming for them? You know, yes. God's wrath. They can get out of it. They can get out of it if they'll abide not still in unbelief. Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. And notice that. God called him a father of many nations before he had any kids. Okay? And that's why he can call us saved today, even though we still have sin. I don't know. I, I, I still think you've got to repent of all your sins. I think you've got to become that new creature, meaning you know, reformation. You quit drinking, smoking, all that kind of stuff. Like, no. God calls those things that be not as though they are. I got declared righteousness when I put my faith in Christ, just like Abraham became a father of many nations when he believed that God would do that. And so I am saved right now, even though I don't phys- I'm not physically in possession of my glorified body. I have the promise of it. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the first fruits of that. But I understand Abraham, once he had the promise of being a father of many nations, God said, you are a father of many nations. That's how things work with God when you get a promise. And so Genesis 17, 1, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and talked to them, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And even though we have Romans 4, even though we have Galatians 3 and Galatians 4, dispensationalists will read Genesis 17 and then they will try to teach those who have are of the flesh, have a promise because of Genesis 17. I made a video one time about that and I had a pastor call me up and he's like, well, what about Genesis 17? It's like, look at what it says in Romans 4. You're, you're claiming a Genesis 17 promise to those who are of the law, meaning the promise is of no effect. You can't have it both ways. That is a blatant contradiction against clear teachings of Paul. It's verse 18 says, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which is spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in the faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded what he had promised he was able also to perform and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. And let me tell you, Abraham made a lot of mistakes in his life. We see the mistake he made with with Hagar. We see the mistakes he made in Egypt and with 
Abimelech. Abraham, he didn't always do everything right, but yet what we see the New Testament constantly referring to about Abraham is his faith. And, and, it's, and it talks about his righteousness because of his faith in God's promises. Abraham, while he had a lot of his own personal struggles, the one thing Abraham really had going for him is he believed God could do what God said he would do. And that was amazing. And you know, he didn't always you know, immediately have the right attitude. Remember when he came and told him you, that he was going to have Isaac? He laughed. Sarah laughed. But you know what? They, you know, after they kind of got on him and told him a little more, they accepted it. And then, you know, the Bible, it, it's, it's interesting too. This is kind of a, a separate note. But it is, it's interesting how you have guys like Abraham, David, or, or really any of the Old Testament characters that we know were saved who made horrible mistakes. It's interesting how the New Testament, it just doesn't talk about it. It just, it's, it's, it's like God forgot their sins. And you know what? I think it's kind of like that on purpose. I mean, when you, even when you read about Lot, think about it. When you read about Lot in the New Testament, he seems like a great guy. But it's like when you read Genesis, you're like, well, I was pretty messed up. He lived in Sodom. He didn't get anybody saved. His wife turned into a pillar of salt. And then yeah, what happened with his daughters when they got him drunk in a cave? And then you go to the New Testament. What does it say? Just Lot. I mean, and I don't know about you, but that excites me a little bit. Because, I mean, isn't that what we need? We need righteousness imputed to us. And you know, I'm telling you, it's sad. It's a sad thing, and, and it's always the devil. If you're if you're one of these Christians, there's a lot of saved people out there who just can't seem to get over their past, and just they let their mistakes of their past own them and define them. Folks, that is not of God. That is not of the Word of God. That's not of the Holy Spirit. That's of the devil trying to mess with you and keep you down. And let me tell you, I'm not trying to you know justify sin or anything like that but i'm just telling you you know what let god let you have the victory over those things of your past and whenever the devil starts bringing you up this might be terrible but whatever it takes to get you just being victorious in your life just at least we all should be able to say i haven't done what lot did <laughs> i mean listen if lot was just i think most of us are covered okay you're gonna have a hard time you know doing worse than what lot did there at the end of his life. So, again, not, not trying to make anybody feel good about sin. I'm just trying to make you feel good about God's forgiveness. I'm trying to get you to feel good about imputed righteousness. I'm trying to get you to get a hold of the fact that God can still use you in great ways, even if you had some pretty bad mistakes. And it is. It's like God forgets about them. We're the ones who don't forget about them. And the devil, the accuser of the brethren, he's the one that doesn't forget about those things. It's the false prophets that don't forget about those things. It's the ray comforts that come along and tell people that they're not saved because they haven't repented enough of their sins. It's people like that. They're the ones that are going to bring those things up. But let me tell you, the Bible doesn't do that. The New Testament doesn't do that. And when you do, when you look at these guys in the Old Testament, they look pretty sorry. But when you look at them in the New Testament, they look pretty good. You know why? Because it's highlighting the righteousness they had that was of faith. They had imputed righteousness and it's like God forgot their sins. Because you know what? He did. And thank God for that. So verse 23 says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him 
that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Emphasis on believing again, folks. And this is in the context too of illustrating over and over again, it's not about works. It's about believing. And again, and then notice the next verse. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. It's been very clear in this passage. We still have sin, but it's not imputed unto us. We still have sin, but our sins are covered. We have righteousness credited to us, but it's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. How did we get this? Through faith. By believing. And so, again, I'm telling you, no carnal, hypocrite, camp-meeting preacher is ever going to be able to get me to be ashamed of the souling that we do here, the salvation that we teach. You know, they can act all derogatory about easy believism and all that kind of stuff. doesn't change the fact that we have four chapters so far where Paul is just clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. This is exactly what we teach. He's bringing up, you know, he's bringing up any objection. He's just laying on... You know, there's some things in the Bible that are mysterious. There are some things that are mysterious. I believe I have figured out. And I, 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 let me be honest. More honest. I didn't mean to say it that way. I was shown. In 2 Thessalonians 2, He who now letteth will let. to be taken out of the way. You know, and you know how the preacher would say that's the Holy Spirit, which is stupid? But I've never really had a good answer for what it's actually talking about. I think, I think you can actually prove what it's talking about. I'm not going to do that here right now. But you know, that, that's a mysterious passage. You know, there's stuff in some Bible prophecy that's, that's pretty mysterious. That's pretty stuff. There's some things that are hard to be understood. Peter talked about that. But then there are some things that just couldn't be more clear. And it, it's very easy to understand why some people, you know, who've never studied the Scripture would believe in a false gospel. I mean, the most carnal, basic, base thing in the world is to just assume you know, you got to be good to go to heaven. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I mean, that, that's a pretty understandable thing that people think if they've never studied the Scripture. So we shouldn't be shocked by those who have been deceived into believing a false gospel. We should be compassionate. We should keep trying to reach those people. But let me tell you something. When you have someone who is teaching a false gospel, when you have someone who has been challenged, who has been shown the truth, and they continue to double down and preach any type of work salvation, um, you know, I think that it's when you start calling people reprobate. <laughs> I think that's when you start calling people false prophets and throwing the labels at them. Not everyone who just, again, who's just accepted something because maybe they were born into that religion. They've not really been taught to go to the Scriptures themselves. And so let me tell you, anyone who can study Romans 4 and teach any version of work salvation, you know, even a repent of sins type salvation, after studying Romans 4, it's either because they are a coward and are caving to political pressure and are not worth the powder to blow them to kingdom come, or they are a reprobate false prophet. Some people are so scared of the politics that they will lead people to hell to protect themselves politically, and they're scum. But what we teach about salvation, it has already been settled in these four chapters. But you know what? Paul, he wants to make sure there's no questions and he's just going to keep showing more proof. As, as we go, it's just more and more proof on our side. And you know what? You know, we're, we're going to go through every verse 
of the book of Romans. And if you do, you want to hear one of these repent of sins goofballs out there, they'll, they'll preach through Romans. But watch what they do. I challenge you, go listen to some of their sermons online. They go to each chapter, they find a verse, and they preach a topical message from it. And they talk about everything except what is contained in that chapter. And it's, you know, that to me just reveals they're lying, they're deceiving, or they're just ignoramuses. No two ways about it. So, anyway, I know this is elementary stuff here, but hopefully it just helps strengthen your faith. And again, just um, I think we need these kind of things too, so we don't ever let anyone discourage us from doing what we're doing, preaching what we're preaching, going soul winning. Uh, a lot of people are letting those things go by the wayside because they're being deceived into this complicated, difficult salvation. And we don't want that to ever happen here. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for uh, the free gift. I thank you for grace. I thank you for uh, just clear Scripture, Lord, just leaving no doubt. Lord, and I, I pray you'll just help us to uh, let this chapter that we looked at just motivate us to just go keep telling people about you. Help us never get discouraged by the false prophets who just want to throw a wet blanket on soul winning and uh, easy believism, but help us to just be uh, bold and like Paul, unashamed of the gospel. And I, I'm afraid that's where many are at today. They're just ashamed of the simplicity of the gospel. But Lord, help us never be ashamed of it. Help us to loudly proclaim it and uh, uh, be skilled in proving it from your word. In your name we pray. Amen.